0: I believe that innovation always serves humanity. We're always afraid of it when we see it. We were afraid of cars. We are afraid of phones. Once we found a way to make it useful and improve our lives, we've done really well with it.
1: For many years, Hollywood has popularized an idea that technologies will rise up and become so advanced and so powerful that they will no longer serve humanity's best interests. But what if instead of thinking of those technologies as the ultimate enemy, we began thinking of them as the ultimate ally, ready to assist when and where we need it most? What if we leaned into that idea and found that the purpose and the opportunity wasn't to tear humanity apart, but rather to bring us together and empower us in entirely new ways? Maybe it's time to see these tools as a benevolent companion that can illuminate our path in an otherwise dark journey. Stacey Shulman is a technology veteran with more than two decades of experience in manufacturing and retail. Today, she serves as the vice president in the Internet of Things Group and Emerging Technologies at Intel. She's passionate about helping others adopt sustainable and evolving innovation practices while immersing herself in the world of IoT. Today, Stacey joins me for a discussion about these technologies. Plus, we talk about augmented reality, new ways of interacting online, some of our favorite books, who inspires her plus other ideas for leaders who are looking to get an edge on what's next. Let's jump into today's episode with Stacey Shulman.
2: This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data-to-everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at Splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes.
1: Stacey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you and I want to jump into your backstory. So how'd you get started in technology and what was some of the early story or maybe your most embarrassing first starts into technology?
0: Wow, I've had some really embarrassing stuff. I'll share mine. Yeah, my first start in technology, I um, was actually right out of high school and was working with Walmart at the time. And I think I was the only one that wasn't afraid of the computer back then, and this (laughs) dates me a little bit. You know, when you're the only one not afraid of the computer, you become the computer tech support person without asking to be. And I ended up really loving that. And so, went from that into training which um, and teaching computer software, which goes towards, you know, my most embarrassing technology. Wow, there's a lot to choose from here. Um, actually, I'm going to go to a different one because that one might not be appropriate for radio. <laughs> <laughs> My PR team might might disapprove. But um, we don't so, need
1: the explicit label for the podcast yet. Yeah, but maybe exactly maybe in the future.
0: Yeah, but it it, it definitely involved a wardrobe malfunction. I was working with a, a bunch of luxury accounts, and I remember getting a tech support call one day, and I won't re- I won't name the name of the the luxury retailer. They generally have some very high profile people in their customer accounts. And they called us one day and they're like, we're really confused what happened here. But um, all of our customers are coming back with this address and we don't know what it is. Well, the address happened to be my work address. And um, just um, so happened that one of our tech guys was pushing an update and connected to the wrong database and wiped out their entire customer database with our street address for our company. So um, it didn't Yikes. take a lot of investigation for them to figure out what happened there. But, um, you know, one, it was embarrassing. And two, it was also a really good case of, uh, you know, teaching the whole team on how to be transparent, how to take account you know accountability for your action and then how to jump in and fix your mess as fast as possible and make sure the customer knows you'll never, ever, ever do that again. Um, so, yeah, there's
1: mine. Really good lesson. Uh, my first humble start was a, Captions app for photos that got a cease and desist letter a couple of weeks after we launched it, and I was introduced to the world of technology after that. Um, Stacy, when you introduce yourself, or if you do share your role and title with folks, how do you usually go about that, and how do you describe your job?
0: So my job has changed just um, within the last week, so I'm, I'm going to have to practice a new one real soon here. But yeah, my my job is um, vice president in within the Internet of Things group at in Intel. And my role has been kind of a dual role. Primarily, my role has been focused on emerging technologies and how do we take those emerging technologies and incubate those or normalize those into a variety of industries. So that's been the way I've been describing that. Um, recently, I've been asked to take over the health and life sciences businesses for Intel as well. So now it's really about you know, focusing primarily on health and life sciences and innovation in those spaces. Um, in addition to um, taking emerging technologies and scaling those out across um, a variety of verticals.
1: Sure. So, a quick nerd aside here: Do you think Moore's law is dead, or is there something more interesting going on? I know there's uh, Intel has done a couple amazing events. The last one I attended was Silicon 100, um, which was you know kind of a pushback against the folks that think Moore's law is dead. But I would love to get your take on that before we jump into more questions here.
0: Yeah, I don't think Moore's Law is dead. I think it's going to be um, what's promised under Moore's Law may be delivered differently. And you know, in the past, it was delivered purely through hardware. I think the future is going to be a combination of hardware and software. And you'll hear that a lot in, in my beliefs, as I do believe that, that software is what's going to help us optimize. And software is much more important today than we've ever focused on it um, in the past.
1: Very cool. So, a company like Intel that's obviously so established in the hardware world is you know preparing and getting ready to really jump into the software side of things i i think um could you tell us a little bit about that or how are you and your teams thinking about this transition
0: yeah and what's what's interesting is intel's always been in software we've got thousands of software engineers you know we'll rival some large software companies but we just never talked about the software side of it in the way that we talk about the hardware side of it because for us the software is the enabler. It's it's what you need to do to get that, the hardware working in an optimized way. And so I'd say that the change there in, in focus, I wouldn't even say strategy, is that, yes, it needs to be an enabler and it needs to be a multiplier. It needs to be a way to um, make sure that you take vast ecosystems and link them together or enable um, everybody with the same kinds of tools and, and drive accessibility of those tools to the masses. So that's, that's the, the new role that software will play for us.
1: And when it comes to emerging technologies or the internet of things, uh, how much of your time gets spent on, you know, in these areas, whether it's research or execution? Uh, is there anything you can share that you're thinking about right now?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, lots of time gets spent there. And, and I would say um, our first focus when we, when we look at the space of emerging technology, you would think it would be on the technology. Uh, our first focus in, in the space of emerging technology is really getting deeply rooted in the problem statement of an industry and understanding first what, what are the problems that need to be solved and what problems matter and what kind of impact can you have based on the problems that are there. And so that's what we get rooted in first. And then we match make to the technology. And so, with that said, I would say the technology that I'm actually pretty excited about um, because I am a nerd is um, robots. And the reason I'm excited about robots it isn't because um, it's a robot, it's because what it can do for other industries and what it can do for other technology. So, explaining that further, a robot is essentially, a, you know, it could be a mini data center on wheels. So, what does it need to do? It needs to process lots of information through a multitude of sensors. Vision, radio waves it needs to be connected at all times um, so that it can you know process information quickly and um, send that send that information back and forth to make decisions in in real time decisions and it needs to be secured um, and you need to do all of that in a power envelope that makes sense and so if you can get things right in a in a robot you can take those learnings and you can optimize and improve just about anything. So if I know how to connect and maintain an active connection to a cell tower with a robot rolling through New York City, it's going to help in all of the things that need to be connected in that way. And if I can do that under a really good power envelope where I can process and update, you know, um, computer vision algorithms in real time on a robot um, under the right power envelope, that's going to improve everything that I do. So that's kind of why I'm excited about the robotics side.
1: Sure. And when it comes to the robotics size, obviously there's been some exciting developments in the space. You had Amazon acquire, I think Kiva Systems, and you've got Boston Dynamics doing crazy things. Are there any companies out there or examples of robotics where you think like, you know, this is the holy grail, this is the golden standard of what robotics should be?
0: Okay. So I'm pretty biased and, and I know that they're public about this. So I'll, <laughs> I'll talk about what the, that's right. the public is. If you don't know Deka, D-E-K-A, it's okay. by, um, founded by Dean Kamen, um, go look them up. I mean, they're, they're building a robot that'll climb stairs and, um, you know, and, and it's built on the chassis of a, a wheelchair base. So the, the whole goal mm-hmm. is that if you can scale that chassis, you can actually make it more affordable for people who need a wheelchair. So they started with building a wheelchair that climbs stairs. Um, and it also stands up so that the person in the wheelchair can be at eye height with somebody. Um, and then the goal is to let's go drive the cost of that thing down. And by doing, you have to do that through other applications. So what they pivoted into was a last mile delivery robot that can climb stairs. And it's as safe as a wheelchair that climbs stairs because it's on the same exact chassis. So that that's a company I think that, you know, they really push the envelope. You know you, you can build a robot then you can build a robot that climbs stairs. It's just a different category
1: really cool. and I think that getting away from the Hollywood fear-based portrayal of robots is so important, and this sounds like Decca is doing that. Um, when it comes to that kind of fight between fear and faith about the future of technology, where do you kind of fall in on that? Are you in the machines of loving grace camp? Uh, do you see these tools really empowering the best parts of our nature? What's your take?
0: Well, I think that you know, any tool misused um, and and used for you know outside of its purpose is is something that we have to be careful of. It's imperative for every technology company to take their position in the world seriously in this in this conversation and um, making tools um, that we can hold some accountability to their responsible use. So i I'll say that um, first. Um, I'm an optimist, though. I, I believe that innovation always serves humanity. And it always benefits us. We're always afraid of it when we see it. You know, we were afraid of right. this, you know, that the train, we were afraid of cars, we we're afraid of phones. Um, but it's always served us. And um, once we found a way to take that and make it useful and improve our lives, we've, we've done really well with it up until this point. And I have no reason to believe that that won't continue. So. I'm an optimist when it comes to technology.
1: Sure. And when it comes to IoT and examples of devices that are connected seamlessly to create an amazing user experience, are there any favorite examples out there of kind of like a full stack IoT that is working well, that you feel like, you know, this is what the future of IoT is going to be? Well,
0: I think that there's some emerging examples that are coming out. And, you know, again, I'll, I'll, I'll go into kind of the autonomous vehicles and in that space, there's lots of good stuff there. And if you look at what happened, so the technology that's being used in autonomous vehicles are now going into autonomous retail stores. You know, Amazon has their, you know, just walk out store. You've got lots of examples of that through China, lots of examples growing in Europe and the US on um, touchless technologies that are coming out of that. And so I, I'm seeing lots of really good growth in that space. And now that we're in a COVID world where where hygiene is just so much more important and top of mind for people, um, and that level of convenience is important, that if I'm going to leave my house, I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to park, I'm going to get up and walk in, it's because either I want a very different experience and I want something that's delightful, or... I need something right now and I want to remove all the friction out of it. So in that category, remove all the friction and and make that experience seamless and safe and, and hygienic. Um, I've seen lots of really great examples of, of that in in the industry right now.
1: Sure. And when it comes to all of these devices, you know, obviously we think about data and we think about the vast amounts of data that's being collected all the time. When it comes to personal privacy and civil liberties how do we get this balance right and make sure that we have a debate about the ethics of privacy as more and more data gets collected?
0: Yeah, I love this question because I'm a, uh, I'm a privacy person as well and um, have been in the privacy space and passionate about it for a really long time. So I actually think when we look at Intel, when we define internet of things, we're not talking for, for us, for it, Intel, we're not talking about wristwatches and, and those types of things. We're talking about um, creating compute close to the data um, so as an hmm. example, you know let's migrate people from taking all of the data that they that they used to have on premise and you know there was a big trend let's take all that data and just take it raw and move it up to the cloud. What we actually think is if you want to create a privacy layer in there, you should federate out those insights and you should look at. Processing that data on premise, so you're leaving it where it belongs, and you move the algorithm to the data instead of the data centralized to the algorithm. You move the algorithm to the data, process, and then move the insight, move what you've learned, and then consolidate those in the cloud. They still need to be consolidated. We acknowledge that, but there's a lot of things that can be federated out to um, the edges, where where processing should occur. And when you do that, you're leaving the data in the community where it belongs, and you don't get into a situation where you're collecting information without knowing what you want to do with it, which is generally what gets companies into trouble. And so right. um, maintain privacy by, by putting the data and processing what you need, where you need it, and then moving the insight and, and take the learnings and consolidate those.
1: And it seems like with that approach, there's an opportunity to have a discussion around mutual consent where you can have, you know, terms and conditions that is understandable, right? You don't have to be an attorney to understand what's going on as it's collected at a local level. Is that kind of what you're saying?
0: Exactly. I mean, and that's so important that to give that consent in order to make sure that you are staying true to that consent, it's easier if you if you keep the data localized.
1: For sure. So, let's shift gears a little bit into machine learning and AI. When it comes to these areas, you've mentioned in the past that you're particularly excited about all of the new training data that's becoming available. Uh, you know, we're finally getting to a place where these sophisticated machine learning models will have enough training data to start to be incredibly valuable. Um, what are you seeing here and what gets you excited about machine learning right now?
0: So, yeah, there's two categories in learning that are they're really interesting to me and, and are exciting for me. One is, is what I was just touching on earlier, which is federated learning. Do that reinforcement learning out at the edges closest to the data, and then take those models and take the insights in the, the, the pre-trained model and move that back up, um, and then you know you can reprocess on all of those. So as an example, if you know a hospital has patient records that it's processing, it should process and build those models in the hospital and move the insights forward, which immediately will anonymize all of that information about patients and you're moving the patterns. And so once you, you take and you move the pattern and you centralize the pattern, now let's say you have thousands of hospitals that are seeing a pattern of uh, blood clots and people complaining about pneumonia and this very distinct cough. Instead of each hospital trying to figure out what that means, now they're consolidating all that all up and they're seeing, okay, no, there was an absolute pattern of the spike on these trends that happened around this time. And at the same time, we have this thing that's been identified, you know, as the cause of that. And so those insights can quickly go back down to all of the places that it needs to be without um, uh, putting anybody's personal data at risk. So federated learning, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on that and think that that is absolutely the, the future where we need to be in, in healthcare and retail and, and a bunch of other industries. The other thing that I'm really excited about is spatiotemporal learning, and that's the one I've talked about in the past, where with spatiotemporal learning, you're, you're taking the way that the human eye processes information and pulling out the relevant features that are meaningful um, in, a, in a, time, um, a time window, and because you're doing that, the amount of training data that you need is so much lower. And so that, that spatial temporal learning is something that we're, we're working a lot with right now and seeing huge improvements on um, uh, the, the amount of data needed to, to train a model.
1: Sure. So a quick nerd aside, I guess, uh, is this considered a biomimetic approach and is that terminology still used in the industry or is it, you know, yeah, I'm just curious about that
0: yeah so um here's where I'll segue i mean we're working with um my team is working with a, a brilliant neuroscientist by the name of Dr. Sheila Nuremberg, and she's brilliant and um when I call it biomimicry she she's quickly corrected me and said no it's it's actually biology it's it is um <laughs> <laughs> the way that the human brain works and the way that the the retina works and um now she's the woman who's cracked the code on how the retina sends signals to the brain. And um, in and, and in the way that she in in the approach that she uses for that for um, spatial temporal learning, it it really is the code that the that the eye uses. I still think there's people who would say no, that's still biomimicry, but yeah, she's she's uh pretty adamant that it's nope, it is it is biology and it's transfer learning from biology, and I, I kind of like that.
1: Sure, yeah, I have a feeling that a lot of our big breakthroughs are going to come from studying biology closer. I mean, they have in the past and. Uh, now as we have even more sophisticated machine learning models to aid us, um, I, th- I think that's where we're going to be headed. And are there any books or philosophical works that really inspire you as you're doing this work? Um, whether they're from a long time ago or, yeah, I'm sure you're an avid reader now, I would love to get a snapshot of like what's on your bookshelf or maybe like top one or two.
0: Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this is a hard question actually, cause I, I don't know how to narrow this, um, the areas that are sp- be a lot.
1: Yeah. D- yeah. <laughs> don't have to be uh rank don't have to be rank ordered, but
0: yeah, okay. So the, the areas I spend a lot of time in right now is um how to think without boundaries. Th- those are the where I'm think, spending a lot of time. And um loan shots is one that I really have enjoyed. Um that that's probably one that I've I've read it a, a couple of times now. Um I'm also a really big fan of guys like Peter Diamondis, who um, You can't put boundaries on Peter at all. And the way that he thinks about problems in the world challenges everyone. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. I was having dinner with Peter, and he was talking about um, exponential medicine and the longevity project. And I made a statement like, Peter, you're going to be the guy that lives to 200 years. And his first reaction was, Don't limit me like that. Um, and I'm like, Oh, okay. I need to definitely think bigger. Um, And and think without limitations because this is how um, people like him live their life. And so, um, you know, I like not just reading books, but I just I like getting into conversations with people who think like that. And so I spend probably more of my time talking to big thinkers than than reading. I spend a lot of time reading, but I spend more time um, talking to people who think like that.
1: It's not blue zones. It's blue millennia. I guess we're we're going for here. Um, when it comes to the topic of longevity, you know, since you kind of hinted at it, brought it up here, there seems to be this challenge where it's a difficult subject to get wide buy-in. Uh, there are many theories about why this might be, um, there's a great book called the denial of death, which kind of has some interesting, provocative ideas about it. Why do you think this is not a topic that more people feel comfortable discussing?
0: You know, I think that people are in a space where they believe that anything's possible nowadays, which is good. Um, When it comes to longevity, um, it's an interesting one. And I've I've been in lots of these debates and it usually boils down to, you know, asking people, you know, if they'd want to live for as long as possible and everyone nods. And then you ask the follow-up, would you want to do that regardless of how you are, what your mental condition is? and then, as people start thinking about things like Alzheimer's and other things, they realize that no they probably the answer to that is no, and so it becomes a really complex topic. Um, the reason I like these topics is because it makes us focus on things like how do we improve alzheimer's research, how do we improve the conditions the aging conditions that we see today, um, and how do we make advances in those and make them more personal to each individual so for me, the longevity discussion is to drive it back to our aging population and how do we make real improvements for them now?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think that anything around health span and um just improving the quality of life, reducing suffering is a great, great place to start. So, Stacey, you mentioned that you were calling in from California. You know, we've been through everything that's going on with the pandemic. There's challenges culturally, there's the wildfires. How do you see California's role evolving as people disperse and move to other cities, tier two, tier three cities. Uh, Do you see Silicon Valley continuing to have its dominance? And what are your, you know, what trends are you seeing here?
0: I mean, I think that we've been the Wild West for, you know, a really long time on, um, you know, people are, are can be rebellious in, you know, in the West, they can push boundaries. They, they're encouraged to fail they're encouraged to try, they're encouraged to have big ideas and and attempt those. And so wherever that sits, you know, it always sits with the person and it's always supported by a community. And so whether that community is virtual or in a physical location, I don't know, I don't know if I have the answer to that. I, I do think though that it's going to be more virtual. And I I hope it is, because then we can spread that around a lot easier than we can spread around, you know, um. Creating multiple Silicon Valleys, and so I do think that California has a place. Um, but I would widen that, and I would say people who are are innovative thinkers have a place in pushing the boundaries and getting all of us to think think bigger.
1: Completely agree. And when it comes to that migration online into the virtual world, uh, you know we don't have the oasis yet. But there are a lot of technologies that are rapidly improving. Are you bullish on VR and AR to bring us together when we're apart? What do you see there that is going to help the future of work?
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm really bullish on it. But I think it's going to come about the, in in ways that we didn't expect. I don't know if you follow Philip Rosedale and the work that he's doing. Um, you know, Second Life. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a founder of Second Life and went to High Fidelity. And what he learned from that and is you know, yeah, you can get people immersed into a world, but really, what ended up happening is people got into those worlds and they ended up creating like community pods with people who they could just talk to and who were like minded sure. and so he actually stripped back a lot of that and and built out a space that is essentially a dot and you can customize the dot and he focused on the um the spatial audio part of it and what what happened is now you know when you you know, think of it as a different type of Zoom, where if you want to join a conversation with Zoom, you have to like, you know, quit one and open a new one, quit this room, go to a different room. But in real life, you know, if you're at a cocktail party and you want to join different conversations, you just walk to a different part of the room and join the join the conversation. And so in spatial audio, it actually gives you the capability to do that. So imagine if you were now in a in a room where you can see, you know, that looked like the layout of a museum. And as you kind of move yourself through that space, you can participate in conversations and hear the conversation based on your proximity to it. And so if you're close into the conversation, people assume you want to participate. If you're standing out at the edges, they assume that you want to listen. And um, and they you know they may ask you to come and join the conversation. But the the work that Philip's doing in spatial audio, I think, is going to is going to be really important for uh, allowing new new capabilities like that.
1: That's really exciting, and yeah, anything that mirrors actual social conventions and conversations and and feels real culturally, I think is going to elicit people being their authentic selves. Right, because I think our communication right now on Zoom and through these mediums is wonderful. However, it's kind of limited by a lot of like cultural and social cues and bandwidth. Um, what other trends are you seeing or What other ways do you think that we might work in the future, or maybe that people are already working now that just aren't widely known about?
0: It's anyone's kind of guess at this point. I can I can guess what we won't be doing. I I don't think Zoom, the way that it is today, will be our tool of choice, Um, right? Because it's it's so impersonal and um, it just isn't. It doesn't give us that social connectivity that that we need in those conversations. It's also really hard to brainstorm with people. And you know, there's those of us who we still like to use a whiteboard and we still like to whiteboard out ideas. And and it's just it's not the same doing that in Zoom. And that so, tactile
1: feedback is so
0: Yeah, it's so important. Boring. Like for I, I yeah. have to have a pen in my hand and I have to write ideas down to visualize them. And so for, for thinkers like me, for other people who need to see it, who are visual. I think that we need we need different tools and I haven't seen those exist yet. Um, so I'm hoping that some other companies will step into that space, that if you want people collaborating remotely and doing it in a way that we're accustomed to doing in a room together, um, we still have ways to go on that.
1: Completely agree. And there's interesting research that shows doctors that write things down or have more tactile uh, interactions when they're recording something have way better you know, memories rather than if they're typing something. And I think this is something that is intuitive, but it's kind of getting left out of the equation as we do more and more on our laptops. Um, in terms of that, like interactivity or, uh, you know, being able to take a risk and jump into a conversation. Um, have you done that recently online? Have you decided to move into a, you know, a new community or have you found a, a pod out there of, of like-minded people I'd just be interested to know, like, what's your learning routine like online?
0: Yeah, I'm. That's evolving, and so I'm. I'm just starting to, you know, this question uh, around um, uh, spatial audio and whatnot. There's, there's a a group of people that are kind of involved in that discussion. That, um, you know, we'll jump into the experience together and kind of walk through it and and look at how that goes. Um, I'm also talking to a lot of artists and. People who do production on, um, you know, in in on and Broadway, um, movie producers, people like that that just think about these problems in a different way. And so I spend a fair amount of time with with people who are nothing like me at all, and they think differently than me. And uh, you know, the topic it doesn't really matter because I'm in the conversation to hear about how they attack the problem and the way that they think about how that. Thing in technology impacts humanity, and in, 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 in from their lens. And so, I, I've spent I've been spending a lot more time on those types of topics lately, um, especially around what does experiential look like when we all come out of lockdown, uh, when we start getting comfortable right. being around one another again. What kinds of exper- shared experiences will people want to have?
1: That's very exciting, and yeah, I love that you're including artists and talking more with artists there. And it's been fun to see, too, the technology community really embrace artists. And I think, you know, we've seen technology companies invest in companies, but now we're kind of at the cusp of, I think, more artists in residence. You know, that's going to become way more of a thing. And I think a lot of these tech companies are going to take ideas from artists more and more seriously. So I really appreciate you including them in the conversation. Um, Are there any interesting insights that you've gained from that frontier of art or anything you could share from those conversations?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm working with an or- organization called Then What? And um, the conversation started with how do you take experience design and scale it? That That's the question that we wanted to answer. And what we did is Then What brought the um, uh, people who were in- involved in the production of Wicked to the table. And we, we talked through like, what's your experience what is your process for bringing a Broadway show to Broadway? Um, and you know when you talk about the creative process, you know engineers tend to think that creatives don't have a process. They just you know all sit around and brainstorm and <laughs> come up with fun ideas. Right. But there really is a process to it. and and they do take ideas, they put them on the table, everyone kind of critiques the idea, and they refine it together. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to capture that process. And so we worked with them on, how do you create a scalable process that somebody can follow, just like they do with software development, for bringing experiential ideas to life? And so that—that's what we've been working through with them. That's been a lot of fun, and, and they've taught us a lot
1: there. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, so one of my friends, John Underkoffler, is—he's uh, worked on Minority Report and Oblong and he's developing this experience for a museum right now. So when it opens up, they're going to do this um, you know, augmented type art show. And I, I think this is going to be a, a really, really big trend where people are itching to get back out now and get back out in the world. Um, do you see corporations bankrolling you know, the new normal, if, if we will? Like, do you see, uh, because obviously they can't do events anymore, so there's huge budgets that are sitting on the sidelines. Uh, how do you see corporations deploying their events budgets in creative and new ways?
0: Well, I think everyone's having that conversation right now and trying to figure it out together. So, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity for someone with ideas to to inspire that. I don't know. I, I, from all of the conversations that I've had with with larger companies, the general feel that I'm getting is people still believe in events moving forward but not all of their budget will go to events anymore. And that there is a lot more online events and um, webinars or, or whatever. And a webinar, you know, the new version of whatever that webinar will be, you know, I don't know if you saw the Emmys, but that kind of approach of a combination of filmed in place and bringing people in through zoom um, that combination I'm I'm hearing a lot of right now. Um, So I, I actually think that hybrid model is where people are going to be leaning
1: towards. I agree. Yeah, I think that's going to be whatever base, it's going to be a good balance for everyone. So prior to Intel, you were at American Apparel, where you were the CIO. Uh, you were at Levi Strauss uh, as vice president of global technology. What did you learn from the retail and manufacturing and commerce world that you then you know took to Intel? Or what did you learn from those? those worlds that you think is very valuable?
0: Yeah, I think that, um, so American Apparel and Levi's there, you couldn't get companies that are more polar opposite from one another. American Apparel was all innovation, all speed, um, full speed ahead all the time. And there were no obstacles that, that weren't created, that, that people weren't enabled to go and just attack. And it was sloppy and messy, and, but it was fast. And that company was versed at a lot of things. Um, Whereas Levi's, 150-year-old company, who was trying to make sure that they stay around for another 150 years in a very responsible, organized way, um, but wanted to start behaving like a startup. And so very, very different companies. I think from American Apparel, what I learned was move fast. You know, there's, there's no obstacle you can't overcome, and innovation matters, and build your teams for being able to pivot. And so build teams that, that like change. And from Levi's, what I learned was you can't just shove change through. You've got to bring people along and you've got to, you know, really get good at change management and, and getting the organization prepared for that change before you just go disrupt. And so I think both of those things, you know, coming into a role at Intel and in technology, you know, tech companies think of themselves as innovators, but they also get into ruts. And they they behave a lot of times more like the Levi's of the world than the American apparels of the world, um because they they go with, okay, here's what we've known, let's incrementally change that versus let's you know reassess and let's disrupt ourselves all the time. And so um right. yeah, that's kind of what I brought into it.
1: Very cool. And you wrote an article about welcome to the first all digital hotel. Uh, which you know, Intel IoT had uh, a big part in helping make possible. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and how did you your teams go about creating it?
0: Yeah, so um, I wouldn't say we created it for Rook, who's the owner of that hotel. He created the vision. We we helped matchmake him to the right people that can make it happen, and um, he challenged all of us to think bigger. I mean, this is this is a man who runs his entire hotel on Poe and. When I first heard about the project, I'm like, you have refrigerators um, being powered over Ethernet? (laughs) And he's like, yes. Okay. (laughs) I just didn't really believe it, to be quite honest. And, (laughs) um, you know, I went and I visited and I spent time with him and his his staff. And wow, this guy challenged me. You know, there was no obstacle that he didn't feel completely empowered to overcome. So at the end of the day, he ended up with, uh, he started with, knowing that if he used LED, it lowered his power bill. And so, an East guy that's like, well, if LED lowers my power bill, why isn't everything LED? And he did that, and he greatly lowered his power bill. And then he's like, well, why don't I have everything running on PoE? Because that's low power also. And everyone told him no, and he just would go around them and figure it out. And sure enough, he stands up a whole hotel that can be powered on PoE with, with a lot of partnerships. But um, at the end of the story is that his power bill was so low that the power company had to come back and basically say, you're going to have to pay a minimum. Sorry, but it's too, you're not using enough electricity. And so, um, which the minimum was still fine. But, you know, this guy was a, a truly an innovator and, and um, I can't wait to see whatever he does next.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. So when it comes to, your work with partnering with other enterprises out there that are interested in getting more involved in the IOT world. What's that process like? And what do you typically work with other enterprises on?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we're not a consulting org or anything like that in my group. We look at uh, matchmaking. And so if somebody wants to work on with us, we want a really hard problem and we want to know why it's important. And we want it to be a problem that can be solved for a big group of people. And we want to make that solve accessible to all. So there are companies who will come and say, you know, we want to solve this problem. We want to keep it to ourselves. You know, our, our answer is politely, there's there's lots of consulting organizations out there, or engineering, engineers for hire that that will solve that for you. Um, so for us, if somebody wants to to work with us on that, um, In my team in particular, I'm not saying Intel. Intel as a whole, we've got, you know, lots of programs to to work with any kind of partner. But um, in, in my group in particular, we we really solve, focused on solving hard problems and making them accessible to everybody. So if somebody has that kind of problem, they should reach out and we'd be happy to talk to them.
1: I love that. Yeah, very much an abundant mindset you have there. So Stacey, is there anything else that you feel More people should be aware of or talking about in the IoT world. Uh, What didn't I ask that I should have?
0: Oh, um, I think that companies have to really start looking at do they have the right culture to stay nimble? And do they have the right culture in place that allows people to experiment? And, you know, of course, experiment responsibly. And when I say fail, I don't really like that word, but we'll say learn learn in a way that minimizes impact, but maximizes learnings and, and insights from that. I see this everywhere right now where, you know, companies are keep, keep flip-flopping. We want to do big innovation. We want to go big. Um, we want to disrupt as long as nobody in our company feels uncomfortable about it. And it's like, pick a path. I mean, if you're going to disrupt, there's going to be some people who are going to feel very uncomfortable about it. And you're going to have to be sure. okay with that. And you're going to have to make sure that the burden isn't solely on those innovators. So enable them and then teach them how to better engage in your company if you need to. But you want them to make people feel uncomfortable. that That's part of the, the job. And so I'd say companies should go and reassess if that's their reality or not. And, it, and if it's not, they need to have a hard um, look at themselves and, and look at their competitors because their competitors are getting there.
1: Wise words. Stacey, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. And to everyone listening, we will see you next time.
2: I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from Mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data-to-everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.